be honest, every, everywhere I go and preach to a different church, I always say it's a, it's a joy to be with you, but, and I mean it, but it's particularly a joy to be with you all uh, this morning. So to see old friends, uh, to see folks I've gotten to know over the last 10 years just by coming out and visiting from time to time, uh, to see God's faithfulness uh, that you've been speaking about and praying about and singing about. Uh, it's just a, it's a great source of joy to see what God has done, and it is a, a real privilege for me to be get to be, get to be the person who brings uh, God's word. I, I do want to say um, that uh, I'm I'm particularly moved by what this must mean for Tim and Sherry. So, uh, having kind of planted a church, uh, knowing the the challenges, uh, being married to a pastor's wife. Uh, I, I, I know I can only imagine, but God sees the prayers, the sacrifices, the, 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 the tears, sweat, probably blood, you know, at some point in the last 10 years uh, that have gone into this. And uh, I'm just, I'm so grateful for you guys. I'm so grateful for God's grace at work in your life, how much grit and stick-to-itiveness it takes to get from where you were to where you are. And so it's, it's all of God, but... But we should be thankful for you guys as well. So I'm just really happy uh, and proud of uh, what the Lord's done. I do, as I was thinking back, uh, I remember uh, the the service that we held in, I think it was the middle school, uh, 10 years ago to, to launch out the church planting team. I remember I looked back uh, this week at the, the sermon that I preached from the book of Acts to kind of uh, explain to the church why we wanted to invest in planting more churches, seeing how this was the Bible's sort of determined way of spreading the gospel. And so as I was thinking about uh, what it would be uh, fun and appropriate to think about together as we celebrate uh, 10 years, uh, I thought maybe looking a bit at, at the way Jesus explained his own mission uh, from, the, from the book of Matthew. I want to start before I read that passage uh, with a question for you to kind of get you into the, the mindset of this particular passage, and that is... Uh, if you could choose anyone that you've never met and have dinner with them, who would you choose? So maybe it would be a figure from history, Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. Maybe it would be an author like, like Dickens or Shakespeare or, or a great politician like Reagan or Kennedy. Uh, for me, Don Mattingly. First baseman for the New York Yankees in the late 80s and early 90s. Never really got over it. Well, whoever it is for you, guess what it would be like to have dinner? Just, just imagine for a second. What it would be like to sit down and share a meal with that person? Right? You get to know them in an entirely different way than you know them through their, their writings or through history. Or you could ask them questions. You could hear their stories. They could get to know you. Perhaps you might even hold out hope that a friendship would continue on past that moment. Would it be great to have a meal with someone like that? Okay, second question. With what kind of person could you least imagine having dinner? Right, think about it. With whom would you absolutely not want to sit down and share a meal? Maybe someone you, you think is dangerous, like that, like a terrorist. Maybe it's someone you just find despicable, like the, the CEO of a company that, that knowingly pollutes the environment. And maybe it's someone who devotes their life to advocating different positions than yours on, on political matters, or on topics like abortion or gender issues. 
Yeah, whatever it is. Imagine how that meal would go. Or what would you talk about besides how despicable you find me? <laughs> how could you communicate your disapproval of this person clearly? After all, when you share a meal with someone, it's a way of it's a way of affirming them. So how would you communicate to this person that, that they're not okay with you? When we turn to Matthew's gospel, we see that the people that Jesus chose to have dinner with was ruffling quite a few feathers. So if you look at Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, I want to read for you verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, at this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is something of a celebrity. Uh, His teaching is astonishing people. According to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, he has been healing people. Uh, People are flocking to him as he performs miracles. And so when Jesus rolls into your small, sleepy town, uh, one of the big questions is, who's he going to have dinner with? Who is he going to honor with his presence? Who is important enough and good enough that Jesus is going to want to spend time with them? Right? Surely if you're in the little seaside town of Capernaum, this is the most exciting thing that's happened in a while. Jesus, the guy everyone's talking about from Galilee to Jerusalem, is rolling into your town. There's there's no bigger show. So maybe you can understand the shock of what we read there in verse 10. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Wait, what? Jesus and his disciples are hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And not just that, but many tax collectors and sinners. And not just that, but they're reclining with him. Right? Jesus isn't sitting there repulsed by them. Right? He's not merely tolerating them. He's, he's actually settled into a posture of fellowship and friendship with them. They're, they're hanging out together. So it's no surprise that we read there in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right, the Pharisees are the religious experts. They're the ones who make the rules about who's in and who's out when it comes to religious matters. They're the ones you think that a prominent itinerant rabbi like Jesus would want to hang out with. Right, they were they were doing everything the right way. They were strict. They were disciplined. They were serious. And one of the ways they showed how good they were was by staying away from all the bad people. Right, that word that Matthew uses there when he talks about sinners in verse 10. Right? Don't, 
Don't miss the point of that. Think sinners with a capital S. Right? These aren't people who struggle with irritability. Right? <laughs> these, were, these were people who were notorious in town. They, they weren't abiding by the established sort of accepted norms for people's behavior. Right? They were they were sleeping with the wrong people, making money the wrong ways, like doing all the wrong things in all the wrong places, right? And they didn't really care very much about it. Right? These were the people who knew they're not good people. These were the people who knew they weren't welcome in good homes. They knew they weren't accepted, upstanding Jews. And so you see something of the, the central drama in this passage. And what I want to do with our time this morning is simply answer the question that the Pharisees pose. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think if we answer that question, we're going to see something really important about Jesus. It's something that I hope is really helpful for Winchester Baptist for the next ten years, should the Lord tarry. Before we dig too far, we have to uh, check out our context here. We, you might have noticed that I've, I kind of skipped over verse 9 in my little explanation there. This is where we meet our author, Matthew, for the first time. So in Matthew 9, verse 9, we read this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So earlier in chapter 9, Jesus had returned from his trip across the Sea of Galilee. And he was in his adopted hometown of Capernaum. He heals a, a paralyzed man. And he starts a, a controversy by asserting his authority to forgive this man's sins. And so now Jesus is moving on from that house where he performed that miracle. And as he's going along, he sees Matthew sitting in his tax booth. So that means Matthew is a tax collector. And that's really significant for this story. So at this point in, in history, the region, this region of the world was controlled by the Roman Empire. And the one thing that, that Rome had done was to, to levy oppressive taxes against the Jewish people. And one of the ways those taxes were collected were by sort of toll booths, tax collecting booths along the side of the road. Uh, men would, would pay Rome for the right to collect taxes. They would be able to collect far more than they had paid. And so they were sort of an agent of economic deprivation. These were Jews who were helping the Romans by taking money from their own uh, brothers and sisters. These were the worst kind of people. These were the, the, the worst kind of traitors. Right? Imagine for a moment that, that you lived in a place that was had been invaded and was being occupied by a foreign country. Just put yourself in the shoes of those Jewish people. Imagine that that foreign army levied taxes that were so brutal that, that you had to, to scratch and claw to feed your family. Then imagine your next door neighbor goes to work for the, the invaders. And, and he makes himself rich. And he makes them rich with the money you want to use to feed your kids. How are you going to feel about that person? Is that the kind of person you're going to want to have over for dinner? Right, so when you read that Matthew is sitting at his tax collecting booth, think the worst. He is a terrible person who had done terrible things, and, and he obviously doesn't care what people think about him, otherwise he wouldn't have gone into this line of work. So when Jesus arrives on the scene there in verse 9, we know exactly what to expect, don't we? He's going to set things straight. He is going to stand up for his people and insult this traitor. He's going to condemn him. Maybe he'll even preach a sermon about these terrible people that are ruining society. 
the very least, he's going to shun him. Ignore him. Make it clear that it's not okay what he's doing. But then as we see in our passage, the most extraordinary thing happens. Jesus walks along. He doesn't hiss at him. He doesn't taunt him. He calls him and says, follow me. We read there at the end of verse 9, Matthew responds by dropping everything and following after Jesus. The next thing we know, there in verse 10, Jesus is reclining at table in Matthew's house. Right, Mark tells us that little detail. It seems like Matthew's too humble to put it in here. Right, this, this dinner party is at Matthew's house. Matthew goes from the tax booth to hosting Jesus in one verse. That's the context in which the Pharisees ask their question of Jesus' disciples. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And again, to get the point of this passage, you, you have to realize that's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. Right? You can't blame them for asking that question. Again, imagine that Jesus came to our world, right? To, to, to Winchester in 2022. What would you expect of him? Well, it seemed like he should at least attend the National Prayer Breakfast. Right? <laughs> Go to all the big Christian conferences. Maybe a blog, you know, post or two. Maybe a, maybe a podcast for we know who the good people are, and we know who Jesus should be hanging out with. What if he came, and he started to go to dinner parties with out, outspoken LGBTQ activists, or abortion rights lobbyists? Wouldn't most evangelical leaders feel upset? Wouldn't you feel betrayed? Jesus, Winchester Baptist is over here. <laughs> Don't you know those are the bad guys? That, that, that's what's wrong with this world. Are, are you saying that the way they're living is okay? Like their question makes perfect sense. Why is Jesus eating with these people? It's it's scandalous. But look at how Jesus answers there in verses 12 and 13. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Yeah. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The image that Jesus uses there is strong and memorable. He compares himself to a physician. Right? No one asks a doctor, why do you spend all day hanging out with sick people? Right? Those are the people that need the doctor's help. Those are the people who know they need the doctor's help. And so in the same way that a, a physician goes to the physically sick, so Jesus, the great physician of our souls, says that he came to the spiritually sick. You see there at the end of verse 13, Jesus is explaining his mission to us. He's telling us why he came. And what did he come to do? He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, to call sinners to leave behind their ways, their their soul-destroying, futile efforts to find happy and meaning and joy in life through anything else. Jesus is calling these sinners to leave behind all of the ways they've been rejected, ostracized, and hurt. And Jesus is calling them to come to him, to, to follow after him, just like Matthew did, to find rest for their souls and forgiveness for their sins, to find a, a healed and restored relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus left the Father's side. He 
He forewent all the riches of heaven. He took on human flesh for this reason, in order to call sinners. This is what God's salvation looks like. See, God didn't just make himself available to yeah. people who needed him. That's right. He didn't leave clues so that we could figure out where to find him. Right. He went where they were yeah. because he knew that they weren't going to find him any more than lost sheep are going to find their shepherd. Jesus knew that if he didn't go and call sinners, they would never come. And the thing is, as Matthew's gospel unfolds, what we see is that this project of calling sinners was going to cost Jesus his own life. Right? He didn't come to call sinners like you and I might execute some errands on a Saturday afternoon. No, this, for Jesus, calling sinners meant that he would be handed over to the Gentiles and that they would mock him and treat him shamefully. They would spit on him and flog him. And if that's not enough, that, that he would be nailed to a cross and left to die like a criminal, like, like he was a sinner, even though he had done no wrong at all. And as Jesus hung on that cross, he took the punishment for the sins of his people. On the cross, God the Father laid on Jesus the wrath, the, the punishment that, that we deserve for our sins. The physician healed by taking the illness on himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He bore our guilt so that we could be called into new life. He rose from the dead. And he's alive now so that, that you and I can be united to him by faith and experience eternal life. So that, that this call to sinners to find new life, it didn't end when, when Jesus was crucified, but he is alive now. And, and that call, that invitation is open to us today. Amen. So we start with a question, why would Jesus eat with people like that? And the answer is as clear as it is shocking. Because those are the kind of people he came to call. So with that said, let me just point out two things that I think we need to see from this passage. First, I think we're meant to see a warning to the self-righteous. There in verse 13, Jesus tells us why he came. He came to call sinners, and that's shocking. That's the people we thought he would reject. But what might be just as shocking is what he says before that there in verse 13. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. In context, Jesus is clearly poking at the Pharisees. Right? They're the ones who are questioning him there in verse 11. And I don't think Jesus means us to understand that the Pharisees really were righteous. But if you remember back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes a big deal about how the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees isn't enough to get anyone into heaven. Right? Jesus calls them vipers and whitewashed tombs later on in Matthew's Gospel. So here, he's not saying that they really are righteous. Rather, when he speaks of them as righteous, he's he's talking to them on the grounds of their own self-perception. They think they're righteous. The reason why the Pharisees look down on Matthew and his friends is because they think they're the good ones. They think that they're the ones who have figured it out, who have a claim to God's love, who have kept his law. But Jesus says something important there in verse 13. He gives his rationale for his mission. He says he came to call sinners, and he explains why, using the words of the prophet Hosea. There in verse 13, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In the part of the book of Hosea that Jesus is referencing here, God is rebuking the people of Judah for their lack of love. 
And so in Hosea 6, 6, the Lord sort of drops this on them. What is it you think I want from you? Do you think I want long prayers and attendance at the temple and tithes and sacrifices? Is what I want most from my people a bunch of religious activity? Because no, I, I want you to love. I want you to be marked by mercy, by the same mercy that, that the Lord has shown to you. It turns out God has no interest in creating a bunch of religious programs that give people a bunch of things to do so they can make themselves feel good. Instead, he wants his people to be marked by love, to care for one another, to look out for one another. What does that have to do with the Pharisees? Well, they were awesome at the rules. They had religion and performance down to a science. They did the sacrifice part perfectly. But what was missing? Love. Mercy. Right? They look at the tax collectors and the sinners and they hate them. Yeah. But they should have gone after them, right? Yeah. They should have pursued them. They should have helped them. They should have prayed with them. They should have led with them to turn to God. Right? If, it turns out, if they were really righteous, righteous as God defines it, not in sacrifice, but in mercy, if they were really righteous and loving, they would have called sinners to repentance. They would have moved towards them. They would have shared a meal with them. They would have done exactly what Jesus did. And so Jesus says, look, I didn't come for you. I'm not here to heal people who think they're perfectly healthy. I'm not here for the self-righteous. I'm here for people who know they need me. And so maybe the most important question for each one of us this morning is, which are you? Are you righteous? Or do you know yourself to be a sinner? I think this is getting harder and harder for us to answer. Because if we drift along with the, the sort of current of our wider world, I think it's getting harder and harder for us to say the words, we are sinners. Everything around us encourages us to think we're great, Right, it's widely assumed that the best way to be a sort of well-adjusted, emotionally healthy person <laughs> is to learn to accept yourself completely just the way you are. Like the heroes of all of our stories are the people who learn to be true to themselves, to, to throw off anyone who would tell them they need to change. And so it might be hard for us to come to the conclusion that we are sinners. It might be hard for us to hear Jesus' call that sinners ought to turn to him. It's possible that we might become so self-accepting, so so comfortable, that we're good enough just the way we are, that when the good physician calls us to come find healing, we think, I'm fine. I'm great. So friend, how do you understand yourself as you stand before God? Do you see yourself as basically good and righteous? Or do you feel the weight and the depth of your sin? I imagine there might be several different kinds of people here this morning. Maybe you're here and, and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe all this sounds a bit odd to you. Or of course you're not sick. Of course you're not a terrible person. I think Jesus would say to you, like the Pharisees, you have, you have a self-perception problem. Right? If you think that you're basically okay, then it's not so much that you're not spiritually sick as that you, you actually don't realize it. But God's word couldn't be more clear. And I think our experience bears out 
that each and every one of us, no matter how polite, how successful, how religious, how nice, every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has fallen short of God's standard and our own. Every one of us needs to hear Jesus' call and turn to Him. Again, I think if you examine your life, your life, you'll see this is true. I think you'll see that you've built your identity on, on things other than God. You've looked for meaning and purpose and pleasure and happiness in lesser things. You've given your worship and your love to lesser things. <coughs> if, you, if you look at your life, there's probably fruits all over it. Fruit of this kind of sin. Bad habits that you can't change. Broken relationships. Guilt. Selfishness. Pride. Anger. Striving for things, only to get them and realize they didn't really make you happy. It's, it's just not enough to be a decent person. I, I can promise you, you're not as good as these Pharisees were. Like for them, it was a full-time job. But Jesus still saw them as fundamentally sick and self-deceived. And the biggest problem is they didn't see it. And so, friend, can you see it? Can you see that you need help? The diagnosis is the first step to the cure. Only those who know that they're sick will ever flee to the great physician. There's a second kind of person I imagine might be here this morning. Maybe maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you actually do feel the weight of your sin. And you feel the guilt. Uh, maybe you maybe you feel like you could actually never come to Jesus because you're so unworthy. A few months ago, I, I lead a, a Bible study on Wednesday nights for guys from a local recovery group, and uh, we've seen some guys from this group uh, come to know the Lord, and they are bringing more friends, and so uh, getting to read the Bible with, with guys who, who aren't familiar with the Bible, who've never been in a church before, many of whom have, have uh, had really uh, difficult backgrounds, and so uh, one guy had been coming along for three or four weeks, he hadn't said a thing, he was just sitting there looking uncomfortable uh, week after week, and, and finally... Um, as we were leaving, as we were heading towards the parking lot, he said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. We went down the hall to my office. We sat down. Uh, his Aaron, he's like 6'6", six, six, probably about 300 pounds. He's a big guy, real quiet, nicknamed Big Country. Right? Doesn't, doesn't talk much when he does. It's a real thick, southern accent. And I, I knew enough about Aaron and his story that he uh, he had had some real problems in his life. Right? He, had, he had done time. Right? He had gotten clean. He was trying to clean up his life, but he he came to me and he said, listen, he said, my whole life, I've always known. He's like, you know when you're a kid, you start to figure things out, right? Like, you figure at some point, like probably most of us in this room at some point realize I'm not going to be a professional basketball player, right? <laughs> I can't jump, I can't run, I can't shoot, it's just not on the table for me. And, and he said, listen, at some point I realized I'm not going to be a doctor. Like, I'm not good at school, it's just not the thing for me. And uh, he said, in the same way, I knew I was going to be a basketball player. I knew I was going to be a doctor. He's like, I've also always known I'm not going to be a Christian because I'm not a good person. He's like, I'm not the kind of person that that can be a Christian. I, I've done too many things. I've, I've messed up too badly. He's like, but now we're reading the Bible. And he's like, this is only my third or fourth week. But he's like, I'm getting the impression that actually Jesus wants people like me to be a follower. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, am I, am I wrong? <laughs> and I was like, can you just write down what you just said? Yeah. <laughs> I'll say this to everybody, right? And I was like, no, you, like, you got it, right? He, he knew nothing about the Bible, but when three weeks in, he was like, this guy wants me to be a yeah. follower. Friend, it doesn't matter what you've done. 
it doesn't matter how lost you are, how sick you feel. Jesus is so great. He is such a great physician that he can heal you. He is such a great shepherd that he can find you. And he is so loving that he will welcome you. Don't ever think that you can't come to Jesus. His love, his forgiveness is for sinners just like you and me. For those of us who are Christians, for Winchester Baptist Church, can you see the application of this principle to your life as individuals, but also your life together? But there is no becoming a follower of Christ that doesn't start with acknowledging your need, your your sinfulness. It starts with repentance. It's easy, though, over time, if you're not careful, to to move from that point of seeing your need for a Savior to becoming self-righteous, to move from being a tax collector to a Pharisee. Right? That's that's the besetting sin of religious people, right? Or you see here how the religious establishment reacts to Jesus. They're puffed up by their own good behavior. They despise people who aren't as good as them all the while missing the point. The danger is that because you are not a notorious sinner anymore, because over time, by God's grace, you're actually growing in sanctification, it's easy to begin to think like you're not a sinner. You wouldn't say it. You've been too well taught. But it's easy to begin to believe it. And so, brothers and sisters, are you more or less aware of your need for Christ? Are you more or less aware of your personal insufficiency, your spiritual inadequacy, now than you were a few years ago? I wonder, Winchester Baptist, are you more aware of your need for God's grace today than you were ten years ago when you covenanted? It is the experience of growing Christians that even as they grow in grace, they become more aware of their sin. And so as they see God's perfect standard more clearly, you you see your own sin more clearly as well. So I wonder if that's your experience. Do you find yourself regularly amazed by the grace of God? That God would send His Son to, to seek and to save someone like you? Are you moved by the idea that the Son of God would shed His blood for someone like you? Remember the story of John Newton the, the slave trader who was saved by the amazing grace of God. He became a pastor and an author. He was one of the most respected men in all of England. And near the end of his life, he, he told a friend that his memory was starting to fade. He was feeling the effects of old age. He knew his time was near. And he said, I'm an old man. My, my memory fades, and I can only remember two things. One, that I am a great sinner. And two, that Christ is a great Savior. Amen. Amen. And that's a man whose heart had been healed by the great physician. This is one of the things, Winchester, that you come to do together every Sunday. This is one of the ways that, that you, you serve one another as you worship God as a congregation. You remind yourselves. You remind one another of your great need. This is how you sort of scrape away the barnacles of self-sufficiency that, that cling to your hull over the course of the week. But you read and you, you sing, and you pray until that, that rhyme of self-righteousness is melted from around your heart. And then you apply the fresh balm of the gospel of Jesus, God's love for us in Christ. 
But we, you come together and you sing and you pray and you read and you listen to God's word until your heart is warm and you remember and you rejoice that we're all Matthew, the tax collector. We're all Zacchaeus. We're all the woman caught in adultery. We're all, we are all the thief on the cross. And we are all sin sick people who have been healed by the great physician. Amen. Brothers and sisters, that's how you get the, the mercy that Jesus talks about there when he quotes from Hosea 6 6. That's how you wean your heart off of self-righteousness. That's how you find yourself captivated by love and mercy rather than mere performance of religious ritual. You remember the good news that Jesus didn't come for the good but for the needy. He didn't come for the healthy but for the sick. And you remember that that's good news because there's no other way you and I would be saved. That's right. That brings me then to the, the second thing to notice in this passage just briefly. And that is, as we follow Jesus, we become more like him. That is to say, experiencing the love and the mercy of Jesus towards sinners ought to make us into people who are loving and merciful towards sinners. That's right. Right. If we're going to leave everything and follow after Jesus, you're going to naturally love the things that he loved and do the things that he did. And that means that we need to love the lost. We need to have a heart for sin-sick people. We need to cultivate love and sympathy for those who are trapped in their sins. We need to work to bring them into contact with the good news of Jesus. You're doing this corporately as a church. Right? That's one of the chief reasons this church was planted ten years ago, to proclaim Jesus to the world around you. This is why churches plant churches. This is why you're partnering with church planting efforts in South Africa. Right? This is why this is why you exist, to proclaim a, a position to sin-sick people. This is why you proclaim the gospel to one another every week. This is why you teach your children and your families about their need for a Savior. It's also something that we do as individuals, as, as individual followers of Christ. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He hung out with people who were messy, sloppy, inconvenient. Right? Those are the kind of people Jesus had dinner with. So let me just encourage you to befriend people who don't know the Lord. Do what Jesus did. Have dinner with them. Once you're together, do what Jesus did. Love them. Enjoy them. Be kind to them. Maybe tell them about what Jesus has done for you. Right? I, I doubt Matthew was shocked in telling people about Jesus. My guess is he couldn't talk too, too long to anyone without the subject turning to Jesus. Right? Those of us who have experienced God's unmerited favor should be the first to shower mercy and favor on the outcasts. Right? Those of us who have been inoculated to the lie that what God really wants from us is our duty and our performance, that what God really cares about are the clothes that you wear and the religious sounding words that you speak. Right? Those of us who have had that self-righteousness graciously replaced with God's mercy should be rushing to care for and serve people in need. Friends, experiencing the mercy and grace of Jesus ought to make us merciful, gracious people. At the beginning, I, I asked who you would want to share a meal with. Maybe someone famous, someone interesting, someone important. Well, if you ask Jesus that question, he would say that he wants to have dinner with sinners, like you and me. Because that's good news. Let's pray.
Our loving Heavenly Father, we would not dare to believe what we read in this passage if you hadn't written it. That we who have sinned against you in so many ways, who have shipwrecked our lives by our willfulness and sin, that we are the objects of your care and love, that you sent your Son to seek and save people like us. We delight, Father, in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that you would help each of us to see our great need for the Lord Jesus, to, to flee to him in faith, and to enjoy him forever. I pray those things for us. I pray those things for Winchester Baptist in the next decade, should the Lord tarry. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.